What does genetics, Boston, and being president have in common? My next guest, Sishan Siddiqui, is currently an undergraduate student at UNSW Sydney. He's very passionate about bioinformatics and science communication. Welcome to STEM Park, Sishan. Thanks, Shane. So let's first of all start where you're currently at. You're halfway through an honours project. Can you take me through what that project is all about? Yep, so halfway through my bioinformatics honours in the UNSW School of Biotechnology. And I'm looking into something known as circular RNA. And if you haven't guessed already, it's RNA that's a circle. (laughs) (laughs) So who would have thought? Hang on, RNA, you're saying it's like DNA? It is like DNA. So DNA, as you know, uh, contains genetic material, Mm -hmm. right? And RNA also contains genetic material, but DNA is double-stranded while RNA is single-stranded. So um, one of the central dogmas of biology is the conversion of DNA to RNA to protein. So one of the steps, the DNA to RNA step, it's called transcription. And there's many factors uh, that go into ensuring that this process occurs um, in the best way possible, in the most efficient way possible, and circular RNAs play a role in ensuring that, you know, everything is done correctly um, in the transcription step. So circular RNA. Yeah. It's like like a fruit loop. A fruit loop. <laughs> There's many different types of RNAs, uh, but my focus is on circular RNA. But let's look at sort of the big picture of circular RNA. So I'm trying to look at uh, the circular RNAs that are present in uh, peripheral tissues in humans, so in healthy humans, so uh, in the liver, kidney, stomach, colon, etc. Now. Let me give you a quick example. Let's say if we look at hepatocellular carcinoma, which is... You have to explain that one. Yep. So it is uh, cancer of the liver. It's one of the most uh, common uh, cancers that occurs in the liver. Um, There was one researcher that was studying hepatocellular carcinoma in China, and they found out that certain circular RNA, let's call it circular RNA number seven, was upregulated in the liver. So usually what that means is you have a baseline um, number of circular RNAs that are present in each tissue. Let's say there's 20 circular RNAs in the liver. What happens if that number jumps up to like 40 or 50? There will be an issue in, you know, the process of converting DNA to RNA and to protein. And once that happens, it could lead to a disease state. So they found out that the increased expression of that specific circular RNA uh, led to, was one of the contributing factors to that certain tissue, the liver liver tissue developing, becoming cancerous, basically. Okay. And... Now, I'm not looking at cancerous tissue, I'm looking at healthy cells. But the reason I mentioned cancerous tissue was that, how did we know that, uh, let's say 40 was a number uh, that led, if you have 40 number of circular RNAs in that tissue, it'll lead to uh, that tissue becoming possibly cancerous. You need a certain baseline to compare it to. You need to understand the normal physiology of the body uh, to understand what exactly is a disease state. So that's what I'm trying to uh, look into. So what are the number of circular RNAs uh, that are present in healthy tissues in the liver and um, colon and kidney and try to build a database. So down the line, uh, medical professionals can look at, okay, so we know the standard expression and the standard numbers, what should be present. And if they find a patient that has elevated levels or even um, down-regulated levels, they're like, okay, let's look into this process a bit more, what's going on. So that's sort of the gist of what I'm trying to look at. 
So what made you decide to enter this field, be passionate about what you do? Yeah, so I guess I got to go back to, I think, year five or six. Wow, that far back. <laughs> it's not really not that far back. <laughs> well, for me um, it was. No, sorry. It worked <laughs> my dad had actually just bought a really nice, uh, I guess, a Foxtel at that point. And it had like a lot of different channels. They had like 10 different National Geographic channels, 10 different Discovery Science channels. And that was on the entire day. As soon as I came back from school at 3 p.m., the first show I think I would watch uh, was Mythbusters. Ah, uh, yes. Oh, absolutely loved them. But And there was a show called Naked Science and National Geographic. Um, so I think that's what started my interest in science. So from year five and six till now, I continue to watch these programs, which are all now on Netflix. <laughs> yeah, good old Netflix. Good old Netflix. <laughs> okay, so obviously passionate from a young age. Passionate from a young age. And when you get to year 10 and year 11, that's when you, you know, really get the experience of going into the lab. Um, at high school, that's when, you know, they sort of trust you with chemicals and certain labs, uh, lab components. And then that's when I saw um, it was it got less theoretical and more practical. So at, up till year 10, I was just, you know, either watching TV shows or reading textbooks. But in year 11 and 12, that's when I really got, you know, hands on performing, you know, um, especially chemistry class, you know, acid base reactions, etc. And it just continued on from there and I joined UNSW in 2015 to pursue an undergraduate degree in science uh, and I wasn't actually sure which area to major in because I was interested in physics, I was interested in biology and chemistry, the medical side but also the engineering side. I was like, oh my god, what do I do? Too many <laughs> options. Too many options. Um, and that's my, my first year, which is great about UNSW Sciences, they allow you to choose a range of subjects. So I did maths and physics and stats, biochemistry. I think I did a couple of extra subjects as well in first year, which is turned out to be uh, quite a good idea. It got me um, a lot of different perspectives I was able to look at. And as I moved into second, third, and fourth year, I sort of found my niche, which was uh, bioinformatics, which is basically the... It's, it's in the name itself. So by anything to do with informatics means a large collection of information. And biology has quite a, a lot of information. And it's just about dissecting that information. That So that information can be you know, either health data, uh, genomic data, or data on climate change. Um, so that comes under the area or umbrella of informatics. And bioinformatics is applying sort of statistics and data science to a biological context and to be more specific to myself to a genetics um, context yeah yeah that is awesome what would you say is one of your major highlights that you did in your undergraduate major program? highlights i think one would be uh in my third year which which was last year um, i'm a fourth year student now would be taking part in a competition called igem so i-g-e-m and that basically stands for international genetically engineered machine and that's uh, one of the biggest uh, molecular biology competitions in the world and it takes part annually in Boston. So what that entails is that, let's say, if you go to 2018, in Feb 2018, UNSW Biotechnology puts together a team around um, 9 to 12 undergraduate students. Mm -hmm. So not only studying science, but studying you know either law, engineering, science. And they're like, hey, so we have um, this competition. It's a molecular bio competition. Co try and come up with... Uh, 
in a way, a biotechnology company um, and try to build something with biology that you can present at this conference. So this conference, there's a lot of things you can do with uh, biology. So this conference has different tracks or categories that you can enter. So one of the categories is, you know, software. So you, let's say you make a new software for um, a pacemaker, for example, or you look at, you know, protein engineering. So we went towards the protein engineering uh, route. And what we did was we joined a b- bunch of proteins together in a sort of um, in a hexamer. So our initial name for the protein was like jellyfish because it had sort of six uh, tentacles, six proteins coming out of the center. And we attached enzymes to the ends of the tentacles. And the purpose of that is in any enzyme reaction, uh, if the enzymes are closer together, the reaction um, is more efficient and occurs quickly. It, it occurs at a faster rate than if the enzymes were further apart from each other. Yeah. So that is what we attempted to do. And you actually created it in the lab. We or? created half of it in the lab. Oh, how? <laughs> <laughs> we 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 got the, we. It's it was quite a challenging experience, and the fact that we actually made half of it was quite exciting. We were quite excited by you know a lot of that was actually the first time any of us had done something outside the textbook, because one of the I think uh, experiments that we had to do actually had not been done before. So we were like seven billion humans on the planet, and us eight, eleven were the first ones doing this. Um, it was just pouring one colorless liquid into another colorless liquid, but it was quite cool. No one else has done that before. No one so. else. And that's what basically being with on those the proteins. edge of discovery with science. You get yep. those opportunities. So. Exactly. And that was sort of the first opportunity I had um, in, in my life to actually do that. So, yeah, we went over towards the end of the year. We had to make a poster. We had to make a website detailing our our findings. The website's called UNSW IGEM 2018. Assemblies is our team name. And we won a gold medal. Gold. Gold. It's like the Olympics. It, it was the Olympics. So I won the 800 meter uh, breaststroke, I think it was. No. <laughs> um, so gold medal in this sense didn't mean uh, we won the entire competition. Ah, okay. Uh, so there were, at the competition, I think there were 350 teams. So they, there were a lot of teams from, I think, a lot of different countries from mm. all over the globe. But so there were winners. There was, you know, grand prize winner and a runner up. But Remember how I mentioned earlier about the different categories? Mm-hmm. So within those categories, if you met a certain standard of science, so let's say there's 10 criteria you need to meet. You know, if your project does so and so, uh, then you get a gold medal. If you've only met half the criteria, silver, and a few criteria, bronze. So we had met the criteria criteria for our entire project to be uh, come under the gold category. Um, so we were, you know, really happy with that. Um, you know, that was the first time you, you know, I want to be you know, a successful scientist. And that's the first time, you know, when they gave us a little medals, like, oh, I've, you know, we've achieved something as a group. And it was it was quite an exciting experience. Yeah. Well, congratulations. Thank you. Gold. Yeah, what an experience. So during your undergraduate and still now with your honors, you yep. not only pursued an academic part, you've done a sort of more of a, a social engagement part. So you are part of something called BABSOC? That is correct, yes. So do you want to explain what BABSOC is all about? Definitely. 
Uh, we are the Biotechnology and Biomolecular Sciences Society here at UNSW, uh, of which I am the president of, and we have an excellent team of about 19 to 20 executive members uh, who really work round the clock to make sure everything gets done. <laughs> yeah. And we sort of, okay, so let's say if you're a first year new to uni, you're like, oh, I'm going to join a society. So if they join us, uh, they would be studying biotechnology or they could even be studying science and not sure which sort of area to specialize in. So we try to help uh, facilitate the transition between high school and first year uni. And if you look at our second and third year uni students, we try to get them involved in uh, things such as iGEM as well as you know looking at career so we try to um, looking at career and professional development so we hold interview workshop resume workshops uh, we also have uh, a careers night uh, which you attended last year yes, thanks for the invite yes. it was great having you there um, mm-hmm. just to understand that um, you know Biotech is not only research and academia at the moment. There's a lot of uh, opportunities for biotech um, in the startup field as well. So just looking at your degree from a, you know from many different angles and ensuring that you have a good you know and enjoyable university experience. So that is sort of the role uh, Babsock plays uh, in the lives of uni students. Cool. So is it was it through Babsock that you developed um, an interest or passion for science communication, or was there some other mechanism for that? It was, yeah, definitely the first sort of experience I got with science communication was through BAPSOC. Uh, that was, I guess, the first time you worked and I worked in such a large team. I think we were, 20 for me was a large team at, at that point because otherwise it was just, I think, group projects of four people, which I think ended well only half the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, those group assignments. Those group be. assignments, <laughs> always fun. Um, but one uh, when I, f- I think one event that Babsock runs called the study sessions was when I think I really enjoyed and looked into science communication for the first time so there was this uh, first year student who was studying one of the biotech courses and he was like hey I, it would be a really good idea to get a lot of first years together and have in like in a room and have someone who's done that course before giving them tips and pointers um, and we're like so initially, I was like, no, I'm not doing your assignment for you. <laughs> uh, but no, no, that was not the case at all. So there's one course, it was, uh, I think it was this first year bio- biotech course, and we all got together and talked about study methods, uh, what should you focus on, what are some good textbooks, what are some good resources. Um, and I think one of the students actually made a Khan Academy type video online. Uh, Khan Academy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yes. a Khan, Khan Academy similar type video. Yeah. A YouTube video. A YouTube video teaching, I think, biochemical pathways. Yeah. So that was the first time I had any experience of teaching and communicating science. Um, and then uh, the student ambassadors program oh, yes. came across, which I think you can give a bit of an introduction Well, yeah, the Science Student Ambassador Program is part of my role here at UNSW is to manage uh, a group of 27 students, undergraduate and postgraduate students here at UNSW in the UNSW science community to help uh, provide opportunities to communicate with mainly with primary and secondary school students, along with other odd bits and pieces of (laughs) sort of just getting general experience and helping us communicate to engage with our primary audiences and that so yeah so I think I've been and Zijan is actually one of our prime student ambassadors oh of course (laughs) (laughs) Uh, now student ambassador has been a brilliant experience that was I think one of the most fun I've had at uni was when we had year eights 
um, a year eight school. I think it was a collection of different schools. There was about 20 kids or maybe 30 who came into the bi- first year biotech labs and uh, did something known as a strawberry DNA extraction, which is a very, really fun event because it was the first time any of these year eights had been involved in, had come into a lab in the first place. And it was quite exciting because just seeing the excitement, it, it, it's it's a pretty standard experiment. You know, you uh, you mash up some strawberries and um, you put detergent and alcohol. And the cool part about the alcohol is the DNA can't dissolve in the ethanol. And therefore, it sort of precipitates up to the top of the test tube and you can scoop it up. And that colorless liquid that you scoop up is actually DNA. And the... Year 8s are still sort of developing the idea of what DNA actually is. You know, you look at a picture and you see like uh, a twisted ladder and they're expecting a twisted ladder to come out when they're actually doing the experiments. I I had one Year 8 come up to me. He's like, he was very upset. He's like, oh, I did it wrong. I can't see the ladder. It's not colored and different. Uh, Where's the red, green? And I want my, I want to see some primary colors here. Like, what's going on, man? And, you know, explaining uh, that was quite was quite fun was quite challenging actually you know I could happily explain DNA to a first or second year um, biotech student but explaining it to someone at year 8 was quite challenging and fun nonetheless but yeah so student ambassadors offer offers the opportunity to develop your science communication skills um across a wide spectrum of audiences. So I think we did presentations for year 10s, for year 12s, even for some fresh year uni students. Um, so it's it's been quite fun. I look forward to what this year has in store with student ambassadors. Well, I've got lots in store, <laughs> hopefully. hopefully. Anyway, so coming back to explaining DNA to a year 8 student, and yes. like the misconception of what you see in a textbook or whatever is picture yeah. the ladder the twisted ladder and to what reality is i mean obviously there's a challenge there to co- compare big, a what, big challenge yeah yeah i mean how often would uh information like that get sort of uh, misinterpreted say to the public i think with uh i think with millions of people i think even billions being on social media now there's a lot of spread of uh fake news and oh, use that term. <laughs> I'm sorry, it's such a cliche term. Yeah. Pseudoscience. Is that better? Yeah, why not? Pseudoscience. Well, when it comes to scientific communication. Yeah. yeah. So let's let's oh, sorry, yeah. Let's use the term pseudoscience. Yes. Cool. And with I guess there's a lot of uh, pseudoscience and a lot of Facebook groups that are against climate change, you know, climate change deniers, and also a lot of Facebook groups which have millions of followers on anti- as anti-vaxxers. That is, of course, a bit of a problem within the scientific community, and addressing that is, is quite difficult. Even Facebook is unsure of how to really navigate that system. Um, so I wonder what ideas you would have. I, well, when it comes to, say, medical advice or, yeah. like, anti-vaccination, I wouldn't know anything really about I know I have to get the flu shot. I know I need to get vaccinations yeah. because if I didn't have them, I'd probably be even sicker today, if not dead. <laughs> it's probably uh, good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and so I guess I want to get your, uh, I guess, if you had any personal experience of misinformation or somebody having that misinformation and trying to communicate that 
to what yep. reality is. Okay. As with my experience, um, it's more directed towards the audience of high school students and or first year unis, uh, university students. So. I guess I had someone come up to me and was like, oh, can you explain climate change in like a sentence? I had a first uni student come up. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> I think one example I've seen online of explaining climate change is that because I think every day in your Facebook newsfeed or whichever social media platform you use, um, there'll always be one or two climate change denier posts come up. It's very common. So I guess explaining it in a really simple term is important. So one example I like to use is, oh, imagine if um, the earth is an infant child, like two years old, let's say. Okay. And you know, what's the normal human body temperature? 37 degrees Celsius. Mm -hmm. Let's say that goes up, uh, that infant child, 37 degrees Celsius, and it goes up to 38. One degree is okay, that's that's all right. It's okay, you can give some medicines. What happens if it goes up, you know, to 39, to 40? And eventually if it goes up, to 43, 44, it becomes sort of irreversible. So that's what's happening with the Earth right now, right? If your body temperature goes up uh, past a certain point, um, all the enzymes and all your proteins in the body, they can't function. So when they stop functioning, uh, they, the body, in, in essence, stops to function and it's, that's not reversible. So that's something similar, which is what's happening with the Earth right now. I think if you go up six, seven degrees, I, it, 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 it's pretty irreversible at that point. Uh, then we need to rely on, I think it was Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk taking us to Mars. <laughs> so in a couple of years, I'll be on the, I'll be on the, I'll be on that flight. Oh, <laughs> bring all our problems to Mars. Okay, bring, yeah. <laughs> bring our problems to Mars. Yeah. So that's a good analogy. I never actually heard it discussed that way. you comparing climate change to the human body effectively. And I didn't know that once your body temperature reaches a certain temperature, it's yep. irreversible. It, it will be irreversible. That is why you need to... That's why doctors might panic if your body temperature keeps rising. And so there's nothing you can do once it reaches a certain temperature. Uh, not, not really. Uh, there are... I guess I'm not a medical professional at this point, but what the concept behind this is, is that why do we have a temperature of 37 degrees Celsius? Because that's the optimum temperature at which the human body functions. Yeah. Right. All our enzymes, all, all our organs, they're used to performing at that temperature and maintaining, you know, uh, normal homeostasis, which is balancing uh different areas of the body. Yeah. So after a certain temperature, imagine uh, if you have two Lego sets, right? And you join how they made uh, their little... Where am I going with this? I don't know. You got Lego pieces. I got, got all right. bits and pieces. I got big, big yeah. bits and pieces locking into each other. But those pieces need to be made in a certain way. Uh, let's say if you chop one of those pieces up, they won't be the same. You can't rejoin them together. The yeah. reason for that is because you've sort of cut out the mechanisms by which they interlock. Uh, okay, yes. Right? So the same thing happens with enzymes. So enzymes work with other parts of the body. They sort of lock onto each other and help body processes you know, function. If they can't, if the temperature keeps rising, the sort of uh, locking mechanisms and the actual shape of the enzyme it changes to an eventually to an irreversible state and at that point you can't do anything and 
so yeah, that's why a lot of、uh, climate scientists are, you know, being like, "Hey guys,、um, we have a bit of a problem here. Let's please act quickly." Because this is irreversible, and a lot of people don't understand that. Like, oh, you know, the Earth—we don't know. We only have climate data from, I think, the last hundred and fifty years. We don't know what happened before that. That's true, but also we do know what will happen if the temperature reaches a certain point, and that will be when fewer go to have to go to Mars. <laughs> yes, that's it. That whole climate change denial debate—that's. <laughs> That's a whole thing in itself. That is a whole thing.、Uh, and a better climate denial will probably probably try and debunk that argument. Definitely. I think that's it was. It's a good way of sort of showing、uh, the probably the catastrophic effects of what、yep. climate change can bring. I think a climate denier. I wouldn't. I don't know what, how they think. This is one of my、uh, ultimate questions or ultimate things to try and figure out how, why they're thinking this way. Yeah. But I don't really want to have a conversation with climate denier because I think you just go around in circles. Yeah, I think it was a Mark Twain saying was if you you have to sort of lower your level of thinking, yes, and then they will beat you with experience. Beat you with experience. Beat you with experience. That's, that's exactly right, and that's like it's it's more or less it's kind of pointless, and you just got to go on、yep. and go right. I know what's happening.、Yep. We're going to do what we can. Yeah, exactly. And, yeah, and, and the sort of stance I take is I deal with a lot of with the science、uh, ambassador program. I deal with a lot of students from year eight to year. Eleven, and we have a big responsibility, and we're in a really privileged position to be able to, as a science student, communicate science、um, to them. You know, the correct science, not pseudoscience. So that is sort of the stance I take. We need to、uh, educate the up-and-coming scientists, and you know, the more people we educate, the more uh, uh, scientific, li- scientifically literate the non-scientific community can be as well. Yeah. So you mentioned to me before that you would like to bridge the gap between scientists and the public.、Yes. Can you elaborate on that statement? I can. Yeah, I can definitely elaborate on that.、Um, I think so. Science and the public. I see myself as a budding science communicator. So I wouldn't call myself a science communicator, like a professional yet. I'm not. I, I'm sure one day I'll be Neil deGrasse Tyson, have my own show, maybe have Bill Nye as well. <laughs> Um, <laughs> there, there are other examples. There, there could be your own. You could be just Zishan. Yeah, Zishan Carl Sagan.、Sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, but one day, one day,、um, yes. But I think at the moment to bridge the gap for me, I need to stay, take a step back first. I need to understand、uh, how I can become a better science communicator first. So I think that's what I sort of need to look at first. So how I can become a better science communicator is, I mean, number one, practice makes perfect. So luckily, I am. There are many avenues at university to practice and build experience. And I think another thing is、um, understanding your area of research a bit more. Being confident, being able to talk confidently、uh, about your area of research, and that sort of. Uh, develops, I guess, the understanding of how you. The most important thing is which questions to ask. I think I, th- when I, I had a problem a couple weeks ago with one of my、uh, software, it wasn't working. I had to go look at the theoretical side of things, and I'm like, oh, I didn't. I was asking the wrong questions. I was telling the program to look at incorrect、uh, to look at.、Um, 
different areas of the puzzle. I, I was working on um, a certain part of the puzzle, but the questions, the pieces that I was putting were not part of that puzzle. <laughs> so once you know which questions to ask, you know which questions to communicate to the general public. And that is something you need to develop first. And then I think the conversation about how can you bridge the gap between uh, the, sci- the scientific and non-scientific community, that's when that comes in. Hmm. Yep. I guess just to add to that, also know your limitations as a scientist because... Yeah. Scientist is such a broad term. You're going to be like a specialist in bioinformatics, for example. Exactly. And that's exactly what you're going to be. But So therefore, you wouldn't be able to ask questions or answer questions related to, say, astrophysics or something like that. Or quantum English, mechanics. Or quantum mechanics, <laughs> exactly. So that'll be sort of my advice to you. If you go, yep. sounds, it sounds great that you want to be an expert and you want to be able to communicate that information to the public and you want to bridge the gap and that's great that's very noble because it's good to actually have scientists directly communicating with the public because then it's the primary resource exactly yeah rather than having an it's not a second uh, secondary uh, news article yeah which is usually always um quite what's the word not flamboyant um there's a term i learned in first year english (laughs) It's uh, it's used to describe news that is you know has a news story that's very dramatic, um, but a, a lot of science news. I'll give you an example. It was I think, oh, this herb cures cancer, and I was like, um, well, cancer is not one disease; it's a collection of diseases, and maybe this herb in the future can I don't know if there's any medical evidence yet what stage are we at are there clinical trials so these questions are not asked in um, science magazine articles usually um, but there's, there's so a not giant, scientific it's, it's not yeah it's not very scientific so whenever I see this pop up on my Facebook or like I think it was 20 cups of coffee a day cause um, I think also causes cancer I'm like well I, I'm not entirely sure if 20 cups of coffee a day is good but I don't think it maybe causes I don't I don't know but those headlines can sometimes be triggering. Yeah, it's attention grabbing or clickbait. Attention clickbait, that's the word. Clickbait. There we go. <laughs> there I we forgot go. about yeah. There's a lot of clickbait articles um, in science, so we need to tackle those. I think that's going to be one of the biggest hurdles to get across because in the social media yeah. age we're only going to get like 10 words for people to get their attention on exactly and then draw them in unless we somehow change the way we give uh, access to information the right information for starters yeah because the title obviously I've seen titles that are completely different to what the article is actually on about <laughs> yeah I've seen those too. And, it, and it frustrates me because it's getting the wrong information out there and people make conclusions just simply on the title and yep. I've seen that happen a lot of times and you see that in the YouTube world also on a lot in the YouTube world because <laughs> anyone can upload a video yeah absolutely anyone <laughs> yeah uh, it'll be a whole great episode on flat earth theory oh no <laughs> or lack thereof I should say yeah. Yeah. and Another issue is there's a lot of attention to these videos. Um, okay, if they're just from a YouTube channel, that's fine. You know, it's, there is an element of freedom of speech. Yes. Um, but sometimes when it makes it, I think I saw a whole flat earth documentary on on a TV channel. Um, I, I can't remember which TV channel it was, but 
TV channel reaches quite a wide audience, and you're giving attention to something. Which I think I know which program you're referring to. It's on Netflix, and it's called Beyond the Curve or something like I that. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I, I believe that was the. It's a documentary following flat earthers. Exactly, um, and I feel there's a lot of there's better uh, avenues where you can give that attention to. Much it's, it's given them oxygen and it, exactly you're and just feeling the fire yeah. and that's I find those things although it's entertaining <laughs> it, it is be. actually quite damaging to the overall message of science communication exactly and you also have a lot of you know high school students that have Netflix accounts and they are exposed to this that is the issue here is, um, and that is not good that is have you actually seen that documentary I I think I saw I saw a promo for it but I've not seen that documentary it's it's quite amusing but it's also it it humanizes the flat earther because they're just human yeah of course at the end of the day and you've got to respect that because they're being fed the information and then they make conclusions on it and run with it and it was funny they did they actually do the flat earthers do two experiments in it to try and disprove the globe earth or try and confirm a flat earth in a sense okay uh, uh, I'm trying to use scientific terms because they flat earthers use scientific terms all the time but it gets jarred up yeah. and, and they think they're talking science and really they're not, not, they're not yeah. Uh, but they actually do two big experiments one using a laser gyroscope to measure to okay. measure a non-rotation of the earth that's what they wanted to do okay. turns out they actually measure the rotation of the earth and they try and go through all the reasonings oh why did that go way that's not expected why did that go correctly yeah exactly <laughs> this is like it's obviously indicating spinning and then they try to do a sort of a laser guided system across a lake or something at the middle of the night mm, okay. a laser thing and the, the guy and then tried to I don't know they set up the experiment in such a way that they go oh that's actually not a bad experiment and they when they actually did it, they said, oh, that the laser garden didn't actually, mm-hmm. was straight. And he said, oh, just raise your end up just a bit, few meters. And then, sure enough, when he raised it, and yeah, actually, it, would. it worked. And, go, and they went, oh, and they sort of cut it at the right spot. <laughs> Whoops. Uh, so, but it had also a balance between, oh, kind of a balance. They also interview actual scientists. Okay. What they think of the flat earth movement as well. Mm-hmm. And they got sort of mixed reviews. It's like, oh, they're people. And others are saying, oh, yeah, they're just crazy. <laughs> crazy I people. guess what's important is how to approach this as, I guess, as adults. You have uh, a normal conversation. You understand their point of view. You, uh, you make sure they understand your point of view. And sort of that's how you would navigate that terrain. Instead of having like heated so, arguments. Oh, you're a denier. You don't know anything. Um, so that's, a, that's an interesting theory, oh, an idea, I should it say. It is, yeah. The model. And I would like to test that out and just sort of see how that goes out. Yeah. But, the way I see how flat earthers discuss things out, mm-hmm. they can get really heated and you're trying to ask a question and they just sort of try and take your head off. <laughs> it's like they're really abusive to you. So, and when that happens, you, there's no there's no progression in, in, in the line yeah. chain of thought. Yeah, so that's why I come back. To, I think I mentioned this before. This is why I come back to the original point with talking to a climate denier or flat earth or yeah. what, in general. Maybe it's best not to have that conversation at all. Because once you have that conversation, you're giving them merit to the conversation. And that may be, may be seen uh, well, as a really damaging thing to the whole scientific pursuit, yeah. I would say. 
but then they go, oh, but we need to have a voice in the room. It's like, well, but you're not approaching this scientifically, so how can you con- contribute to the scientific community? Yeah. But then they'll get upset about that as well. <laughs> so, exactly. Well, it's... I'm sure we'll, I'm sure we'll get there. Hopefully, one it's day. going to be an interesting one. Or one day they'll just either just wake up and accept it, or they'll just keep on going, and hopefully they won't grow. But unfortunately, uh, a medium like YouTube is—it's a strong medium. Yes, it's but it's—it's really... it's got microverses in YouTube. Oh yeah. Once you pull a thread, you just open up this whole world, and it's amazing how the YouTube algorithm works. It's so complicated and. Uh, that's a whole other That's, conversation uh, there, right there. We'll need to get, I think, a YouTube data scientist in here. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You mentioned that as a science communicator, you want to ask the right questions. So there's a few yeah. questions, uh, well, at least a couple of questions that I have for you. So the, sure. the common question that we always ask our guests, what does STEM mean to you? What does STEM mean to me? So STEM, I guess for me, it's really everyday life, uh, my day-to-day life. So science the s in stem is i'm doing a science degree and you know and then you talk about the technology and engineering um bioinformatics is a combination of software engineering data science so there's a lot of aspects of engineering and uh biology that i sort of look at the best of both worlds and that's how i tackle my bioinformatics projects that i have um and then i think the m was for Medicine, mathematics. So, oh, yeah. So, you, <laughs> depending on the school, you got STEM. Yes. The, the first one is the mathematics. The second one M is medicine. Yeah, yeah. Because I've seen STEM with one M, STEM with two M's, STEAM. So I guess all of them. It, you need uh, to look at all of the letters, uh, <laughs> and yeah, all, all those letters really dictate my day-to-day life. So like I talked about science and engineering, and then I talked about, I do a bit of statistics, so that comes out of mathematics. Um, I, and I hopefully, my thesis that I come out with, hopefully at the end of the year, uh, could have an impact in the field of medicine. So that's, yeah, STEM to me is how I approach my day-to-day life. So you mentioned all the letters, obviously M, the second M for medicine, that's clear. Yeah. What about A for arts? How does that come into your life? I think that, so I was having um, dinner with a friend the other day, and he studies linguistics and biotechnology. Ooh. Never met anyone who studies linguistics and biotechnology. So he's, he's quite an interesting person, um, very passionate about what he does. And I, w- I had read a couple, he had written a couple of literature reviews and articles. He also has his own podcast and he writes a lot. Um, He's, he, he runs his own journalism platform online as well, which is quite interesting. And I think studying English uh, literature and also history and linguistics allows you to be a really good writer. <laughs> a brilliant, he is one of, uh, he's a great science communicator and he's my age. So he's also a fourth year student. Hmm. So I think that's where, in my experience, where the arts comes in, it's, I think, in arts, a lot of arts degrees, you're required to read one or two books a week, and you're writing a lot. So I don't think I write or read half as much as any arts student do, and that helps you develop a lot of science communication skills. Because once you go, I want to, you know, hopefully go into PhD in academia, you need to be writing a lot. You need to be publishing a lot of papers. You need to be giving lectures. You need your number one skill should be science communication. 
<laughs> in in a way, uh, yeah. the research is very important. But you know, at an academic institute, it's all about communicating your research. That is the number one priority, and that's where the arts comes in. Uh, I feel that's it's it's a very very useful um, skill to have. Yeah, yeah. Something I need to improve on. <laughs> I did an art subject in my undergraduate. Oh, so much reading, so, so much, much writing. writing. A lot. But I was kind of grateful for it. Uh, but, uh, I think on the whole, it did help me in yeah. my thesis writing with my two theses that I've written. Possibly a third in the next few years. We'll see how that one goes. Good uh, luck. But yes, so, uh, <laughs> but writing is very is probably one of the key things the sciences does need to perfect yeah. in some way. It can then find your voice in that. Definitely. Uh, and, and, and you hit it right on the head about communicating science to yeah. anybody is probably the most important thing, the reason why you do science, which actually goes over a lot of people's heads. Because I remember when you look at sort of the philosophy of science, and forgive me for all those history and philosophy <laughs> buffs out there, but I, from what I've gathered from my readings of it and what yeah. I've been um, told, there are three main aspects of science. And one is facts. Okay. Everybody knows facts. And that's what really gets communicated. They're the clickbait types. Yeah, the click, yeah. Then there's the understanding of science, which is fundamental to actually what, finding out what is actually going on in the world. Yep. And then there's the third aspect, which is probably, as you've just argued eloquently, if I can say that word properly, uh, is probably the most important one, is that sort of society or science in society, effectively. Yep. So communicating what you do to society. Because what's the point of actually understanding what you do and you can't share the knowledge? Exactly. Because it won't... Because at the end of the day, uh, if you don't do this, then it won't actually progress society as we know. No, not at all. Mm. So, and, very good point there. Thank you. And just to add on to that yep. point, communicating uh, how I'm trying to develop my skills as communicating my research to the public um, is trying to look at how the scientific community communicates within each other. Ah, yes. Yeah. So, there's a lot of... Uh, within the scientific community, you know, you have symposiums. I think... Um, no, I don't think. I know the... School of Biotech at UNSW, they have a research symposium every week. So, and you know, there's a lot of conferences, there's a lot of events around the world. So, there's a lot of communication happening within scientists. Um, so, attending those and you know, understand because these conferences and symposiums and lectures are all given by uh, usually senior lecturers or professors. So, they ha they're really good at communicating their science because they've been doing it for decades. Yes. And I think at the end, when you want to commun what I've learned from attending the symposiums is um, always get at the uh, once you finished either at the start or the end of your presentation, always have a point on how does this impact the general public? Mm. What is the big idea? And that's sometimes a bit hard to do if you're working in a really niche area. And another, so that's attending those symposiums has helped me. So I'm, I'm trying to at the moment formulate, oh, what's my, what's the big idea of my project? Is there a single big idea? Is there an entire pipeline of big ideas? I don't know. We'll get there. But one other thing that has helped me, um, I also, I've also done a couple arts courses at uni and it's sort of gotten me into a bit of a reading habit. And I've started, so once I stopped the arts courses I my reading habit actually went down so I try to pick it up a bit and because I had to spend a lot of time reading science textbooks instead of I guess World War II <laughs> <laughs> yes. or other poems 
But how I sort of try to get myself into back into reading, um, getting back to this point of science communication was, I started subscribing to you know Science Magazine, um, and Nature also has some really good magazines that come out, um, really good articles that come out. Uh, I think it was every day actually, and these are just I think five six hundred word articles. So it's not you know if you get up in the morning and you're like oh I need to read a two hundred page book today, it's it's hard to get started. Hmm. But these articles are, are really great because it keeps you engaged with what other scientists are doing and also, you know, helps you uh, develop your ideas as well. I'll give a really quick example of that. There was one uh, article I read a couple of days ago. It, it was called, Branching out from my area of expertise felt risky, but I did it anyway. So this is a story of um, an associate professor in the States who was a molecular biologist by trade, had a PhD in molecular biology, which is basically a lot of lab work, uh, but spent two years as a postdoc working in a bioinformatics lab. Um, so ditched the lab completely and just ha- and is now working 100% on her computer. That is exactly what I have done because my undergraduate degree is in molecular and cell biology, mm. but my honors is in bioinformatics. I've only done one bioinformatics course in my entire uni degree. Huh. Yeah. So, and I was like, oh, wow, I can really relate to this. And the and now you might be asking, oh, why did you do that? Um, oh, yeah. So, why did you do that? <laughs> um, one of the, there's multiple reasons, but one of the reasons I did that was, you know, research can be, you know, tedious, repetitive, and sometimes you need a change to sort of re-inspire yourself. So as uh, technology, you know, technology is uh, growing and, you know, we're going more into um, the age of Star Trek. Okay, <laughs> maybe, maybe not there yet. One day. Uh, one day. <laughs> go to the final frontier. Final no, frontier, <laughs> my yeah. biotech enterprise. <laughs> <laughs> um, with the development and advancement of technology, Biology has also evolved as well, right? So in the 80s and 90s, um, you would have, let's say if someone is doing cancer research, it would mainly be someone looking at cancer cells under a microscope or dealing directly with patients. But now you have um, one bioinformatics lab that I know, they actually work with IBM. Google AI, um, Microsoft, uh, sorry, Amazon Web Services, because now we're able to reach um, that frontier where we have access to a lot of genomic data and sequencing technology has really incre- uh, improved a lot. So it's biotech, biology is now, it's all of STEM. You have, because like I said, my day-to-day life involves software engineering, data science, uh, programming, also looking through genetics textbooks. So, yeah, that's why I think the field has evolved into being uh, multiple fields in one. That's what bioinformatics is. And that it's it's a very interesting and challenging area, and hence that's why I sort of um, evolved from being a molecular biologist to being a bioinformatician. Hmm. That's incredible. Yeah. And I guess the last uh, sort of point, and uh, continuing on from that, is... Eventually, you want to be an expert in your field, but I guess sometimes uh, the idea of an expert or expertise can be the willingness to move outside your comfort zone, because to be a researcher, you need to be asking yourself new questions every year. Uh, You need to be looking at new areas, and having perspectives from physics, from chemistry, from maths 
I think that's the only way to really do that. Um, so yeah, that's hopefully <laughs> what I uh, envision to do. Wow, you got a bright future ahead of you. That's what I, <laughs> I hope so. Because <laughs> it sounds like you're already thinking like a PhD student. Because the way you say, what's the big idea? What's what do you want to contribute to? And that's yep. essentially, well, what my supervisors keep saying. What is what do you want to be contributing to? What is your big picture stuff that everybody would like to talk about? Sort of thing. And that's one, it's interesting, but two, yeah. it guarantees you a job because everybody wants to hire you for what you do. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, being a, being employed would be fun. <laughs> that would be good. <laughs> that, that's that would the only be... way to actually get ahead is to get this job. Ex- exactly. Yeah. And but it's it's also a very exciting time to be a PhD student in bioinformatics because it's not only let's say you have a PhD in bioinformatics and you would think um, okay go do a postdoc and work in a lab and become a researcher um, that's not really the case anymore um, I'll give you one example there was a PhD student and he did it in bioinformatics and he was really good with because in bioinformatics you need software engineering skills as well a good really good biological background um, he's actually working with a group in Australia. Uh, they're actually IBM Research Australia. So I'm like, wait, IBM and biotech and biology, where did that come across? So they're actually creating sort of an artificial intelligence to look at um, sort of a blood test for Alzheimer's disease. Oh, wow. Nothing like this could ever be possible before. Hmm. So we're reaching a really sort of, you know how we had, I think the early 2000s was the computer age. We're really coming into the biotech age now. And I think recently Google AI worked with a team of medical scientists at Northwestern University in the States. Um, they made an artificial intelligence model that could look at, um, that could detect lung cancer in CT scans better than doctors could. Uh, and the doctors had about a roughly eight years experience. And that is, that is incredible. Wow. We're in sort of um, one of the best times in history most exciting times in history uh, to be in biotech. And you're just at the beginning of it. So. I am right at the beginning of so it. So hopefully saying, you'll catch the way right at the beginning I, and about 30, 40 years' time, we'll look back on this and go, wow, look at where you come. That, You're now that world is the goal. leader in bioinformatics. World leader, dean of science. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? Nice. But it's, it's an exciting time. Yeah. And I'm I'm very glad to be provide uh, to be part of it, and it's really important that you know universities um, in Australia are supporting this um, these causes. Yeah. Hmm. So I've got a question for you. What would be a good tip for somebody wanting to start into science communication? Because if they want to become a STEM professional in the future, yeah, I think a good uh, starting point would be okay. Let's say they're year twelve. Say year twelve yeah. or early high school uh, or early university. And okay. maybe they're thinking 10 years down the track, I'd like to be here as a STEM professional. Yeah. How would I get from A to B? Really? Exactly. Yeah. Well, I would. I think the easiest thing would be um, find something you're passionate about. That is also not easy. But I would think have a really open mind. You know, in first year, you're at a point, I guess you're 18, 19, where you don't have too many responsibilities. And you have that sort of uh, leverage to explore a lot of different areas. So... Don't pick, you know, oh, I love quantum mechanics. <laughs> that is going to be my life yeah. for, the, for the rest of your career. Because I'm sure that's not going to be, it's never um, that easy. So look at physics, look at biology, look at what's happening around, you know, the science ecosystem around you. 
and just find one topic and maybe talk to someone about it. Be like, hey, I'm interested. I found these uh, people um, in a biotech lab and they're making a new way to make insulin. That's really interesting. I thought insulin could only be made by pharma companies. That is not true. We now have the technology that uh, two people in a lab can make insulin, hmm. which has a lot of uh, problems with it, but is also very exciting. Um, so, and you don't have, so this is a, a bit of a biology context, but you can be a physicist, but you're interested in this area. So you can be like, oh, let's go talk, let's take a microphone, buy a microphone from eBay for 20 bucks. Depends of the quality of your podcast. And just go talk to them. Mm-hmm. Or just, you know, you saw something interesting. You saw two, three interesting articles. Make a summary. Um, join BAPSOC. We have a journalism platform. All right. Awesome. Yeah, we've, we've started a journalism platform. So it's called Bab- Babs Microjournalism. Oh. Uh, we added micro because microbiology is a big part of biotech. Yes. And uh, we hopefully are going to put together a magazine towards the end of the year about the biotech ecosystem in Australia. So I guess it's, yeah, just choose one topic and do it. Fantastic. That would be, yeah. Yeah, that's your tip. <laughs> my, my little tip. <laughs> All right. One final question for you. Yes. Uh, our previous guest, Mitch Gibbs, has asked the question of the next guest. Okay. And his question is, if you could relive any moment from your past, what would it be and why? Okay. Well, there are a lot of moments that come to mind. Like, for example, one of them was reading that last uh, chapter of the last final Harry Potter book. That was pretty wild. That was pretty crazy. What a moment. moment. Um, But I think uh, something more recent would be something I talked about earlier in the show was uh, knowing that we had won the gold medal, won a gold medal in the iGEM conference. Mm -hmm. That was quite an exciting experience because that was the first time, you know, I looked around at my teammates. We're all sitting there and they announced, oh, UNSW iGEM gold. And, you know, we looked around each other like, uh, there's not a lot of times you can say look over to your group partner and say hey man you know I'm proud of what we did here because to work in a lab this was in addition to you know uni was still going on so our timetables would be I think 10 to 4 would be classes and then 6 p.m. till 1 a.m. would be lab this went on for six months continuous it, it, was, it was a lot of effort it was a big group effort and being rewarded for that at the end was like wow you know that was you know as a scientist i want to be successful and that was sort of the first taste of success i I really had um in terms of the wider scientific community and it was an international conference so there were teams from all over the world but what was very interesting about that conference so i would love to relive that moment uh time and time again but a really quick point is there's a lot of high school teams there as well which is even more exciting there's a high school category there was a there were a couple of 16 year old teams from china and singapore who were absolutely just brilliant the science they were doing i don't think i don't even know what dna or genetics was at that that point and they were actually presenting at an international conference so attending that conference being like you know the future of science is in good hands you have 16 year olds performing experiments that a couple years like a couple decades ago could only be performed by professors who had 50 years of experience so it really shows that hey guys we're really the scientific community is really progressing because a lot of younger people are being getting involved and doing like really amazing things and i guess the access to that technology is vastly improved vastly improved there's millions of genomic data sets publicly available online right now 
Oh wow! Yeah, this which is great, which is why I can do my research. <laughs> ah, that, yeah. So I'm using publicly available data. So this is great. So someone, you know, just learn a bit of programming and be like, hey, I looked at this data set. You looked at it too. Let's you know see if our results corroborate or mm. anything. So it's it really helps uh, with how I think the cost of entry um, into the scientific world has decreased. Like in 1995. The biggest thing to happen that year was the Human Genome Project, mm-hmm. where they sequenced the entire human genome for in 1995 um, for the very, very first time. Do you know how much that cost? I think it was in the millions, wasn't it? One billion. One billion. One billion. A thousand million. So yeah. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> uh, you know how much it costs now? I heard a figure is actually in the thousands. And I think it's about a grand. A grand. I think it's yeah. about a grand. And we'll get close to one dollar, I think. Um, it was one dollar. 2025 ish if that's my just around the okay. corner that is around the corner maybe 2030 but Oof. it's it's incredible come so that's yeah that's that's come like imagine 30 the, years 30 35 years we have come from a billion to one dollar that is what we, that is what the projection is and just imagine you can sequence so many people look at different disease how or look at even bacteria. You can sequence bacteria for a dollar and look at how, I guess, antibiotic resistance has developed in bacteria and then look at a region where the bacteria is present and how humans living in that area are affected by that um, and look at a lot of human genetic data. So it's, just on that, you're talking about like if you map an individual's human genome in a sense. Yes. You could, you, I think you were touching on Personalized diet. Personalized medicine. Medicine. Yes. This is a very exciting Because at the moment, field. we're just doing a blanket approach when it comes to, oh, you've got something, we'll give you some antibiotics or give you something. That's, uh, yeah, that's generally how a lot of medicine works. Uh, there are a lot of people doing personalized medicine at the moment, but I, I still, I do believe that's still an expensive process. I would imagine so because, yeah, because they're going to narrow down exactly what you yeah, yeah and then has. also you got to look at the healthcare industry and a lot of this research is happening in the states uh which has an interesting healthcare system yeah, <laughs> yeah it's a topic for another <laughs> podcast but personalized medicine can uh especially if you look at uh, cancer patients can have massive effects on how we treat cancer but the other issue is you know who owns your genetic data and that's an entire another area of discussion there's a lot of i hear people can patent a line of your genetic code and therefore you have to pay the company a certain amount of royalties because you are you have that genetic code in your that is quite scary that that was one thing but never eventuated because it's just ridiculous at least i think i hope it won't happen but Uh, you never know it's it's an area where we we don't know with, with genetic uh the able, ability to sequence the entire genome for a dollar and look at personalized medicine and also editing genomes which was the biggest story of 2018 was the a doctor in china who edited out the ccr5 gene mm-hmm. in an unborn uh, that was yeah, using CRISPR, wasn't that it? That was that was using CRISPR, and what what he basically did was, when you're infected by the HIV virus, it looks for that particular region, and it binds onto it. Mm. But if that region is not there, it can't it theoretically can't bind onto it. But 
that gene also plays a role in the body's immune defenses. And in all honesty, those babies... Um, Super babies. Been, <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> we have absolutely no idea what will actually happen to them. No idea. And we actually... One of my friends came up with like a, a little magazine was, let's say 50 years down the line, you can... There's going to be an iPad app to make your own baby. So you go, imagine, this is not, this is not science fiction. I really don't think this is science fiction wow, anymore. You can yes. download the app. Let's call Apple Baby, iBaby for this high class uh, individual. You're like, okay, uh, blue hair. No, not blue hair. Um, let's go with dark black hair, blue eyes, 6'4". Um, let's say he has a heightened sense of this particular intelligence. He's very good at programming. Send that out to... Uh, a company and they'll be like here's your baby oh my goodness I thought you were going to go oh, l- swipe left 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 swipe right yes that's what oh I'm no, <laughs> no. Uh, <laughs> but now you're actually talking about personally creating a human thing to what it's like oh, that's scary that's Gattaca and it's <laughs> that is very much and we're not far from it like the technology is could be there but uh, there, it's this is all a lot of Theoretical at the moment. Speaking of technology, we mentioned CRISPR. Can you describe what CRISPR does? Yes. So CRISPR in its uh, simplest form is, let's think of it as uh, as a tiny robot that can go into your body and snip part of a gene. So let's say if you have a specific region in your gene and your human genome that is detrimental. That if you have uh, a genetic disease, if your parents had uh, a genetic issue, it's likely that you know you've inherited that disease. So we'll be like, oh, okay. Um, let's see if we can actually just take this out. Just just take it out. That's in a sense. That's what. So it goes in and literally just cuts a section out. Yeah, and uh, in some cases replaces it with the correct sequence. Uh-huh. So let's say the correct sequence is GCC, for example. Um, but what you have is GCT, and just it's sometimes it can be that minor. Let's replace it. Let's cut off the T and replace it with a C. Um, it, and there's a, a lot of different uh, aspects of CRISPR. CRISPR is a big technology. Uh, I think that's for another time to really dig deep into <laughs> it. Um, but in in its simplest form, that is that is what it I think is. We've come up with a lot of topics for future episodes. Of steampunk, more than we can, more than happy to. We can have a (laughs) a a segment like Fridays with Zishan. That's if we ever get it that regular. That's the only (laughs) issue that we have. Uh, We can call it like Stem Z or something like that, or Stem Conversations. Yeah, Conversation with Zishan. Conversation Street. Okay, so (laughs) that was all coming out of uh, Mitch Mitch's question. Oh, yeah. And so what would be that your was... question for the next guest? Oh, I don't know if I can match that question. I was My question was quite basic. I, I've, I'm always interested in what people are reading. I'm always So my question was, what are the three science-related, the latest three science-related books you've read? Uh, over whether it's the past uh, couple months or past year. So, so the, the yeah. latest three scientific-related books yeah. and why? Or articles. Or articles. Okay, or, or articles, articles, or articles. And just comment on them. Just yeah. comment on them, yeah. yeah. Did, just, did you like it? Did you hate it? Did you, you like think it was far-fetched and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, exactly. And that, yeah, that would be, I'm always interested in, in hearing what, what people are reading at the moment, science-related. That's a good question. I like that one. Thank you. Well, good. Well, Zijan, 
It's been an absolute pleasure. Oh, pleasure is all mine. It's really so, fun. Yeah. <laughs> so all the best with the honors. Thank you very you got much. got that thesis to write. And thesis I is see a, a weeks really good future ahead of you, both being a specialist oh, in research in bioinformatics and <laughs> also as a communicator in that field. Yes, thank you very much. Really appreciate that. Yeah. Thank you. Cheers. Awesome. Bye. is part of the Australian Educators Online Network, aeon.net.au.